0: Hello and welcome to Panoramica. Today I'm joined by CEO of Concern Worldwide, Dominic Huxorley. Dominic, thank you very much for speaking with me. Not at
1: all, pleasure to have you
0: here. Uh, You grew up in
1: Belfast, did you? Uh, that's right. Yes, I grew up among the Troubles uh, and come from a medical uh, background. My dad was a doctor. My mum was a nurse. Big family, four brothers, uh, three sisters. And I, I you know, um, I was never terribly sure what I wanted to do. Uh, so, in the absence of anything, I thought, oh, I'll do law, and I studied <laughs> law in Queen's University. Um, But really, I was kind of motivated by travel and adventure and doing something else for a couple of years. And so I saw an ad for Concern at the age of 25, uh, signed up, joined for what I thought was two years, and I'm just about to hit 40 years with the organisation.
0: Wow. So it it wasn't
1: ever a long-term idea then when you were signing up? No. You know, I I often felt that I only knew what I was joining after a year or two of being in the organisation And I started to recognise that Concern had this phenomenal reputation. Um, And as I understood the organisation, I started to understand the connections back to Ireland and our own history. Um, Because when you join an organisation, you read mission and vision and values and you go, "Okay, Concern, fine, you look like the same as everybody else. But it it really struck me that um, a core focus of the organisation kind of sprang back into our own history and our own dna as a nation focus on poverty overcoming conflict and overcoming famine and those really uh, were have been a core focus of concern uh, ever since it started in biafra back in 1968 and so that connection together with the fact that it was an organization even then that continues to have a very strong reputation was what kept me within Concern over all these years,
0: and where were you first positioned then when you joined at the age yeah, of twenty-five, twenty-six? When
1: I thought I was going to be, it was I thought I was going to be in some kind of you know African village, you know, and helping rebuild a school or something, and I thought I was getting away from conflict in Northern Ireland and I was going into something more peaceful and, but that's not how it happened. And I was immediately asked to go in and work with the Cambodian population, refugee population on the Thai-Cambodian border. Um, who had fled Cambodia as a result of the genocide. And I started there in 1982. And either by default or by design, I found myself then being asked to continuously go into emergency crisis situations. Concern, as you know, is both emergency and development. But I ended up going into major crisis, Kosovo, Rwanda, Iraq, Syria. And that's where I... Ironically, probably felt that my skill set was best used.
0: Would you say you would have had the same skill set if you hadn't grown up in the north of Ireland, Northern Ireland
1: during the Troubles? I think I understood and was attuned to um, the complexities of conflict. Uh, I, was, I understood the devastating impact that it has across all levels of society. I mean, I grew up with a degree of discrimination and I saw discrimination. You know, even going into the uh, law faculty uh, at the time, I remember someone saying, oh, I see there's an awful lot of Catholics getting in these days. And that was an attitude that was persistent many years ago. And so there was, you grew up with this. My dad was a general practitioner and he had a surgery on the False Road, uh, which, you know, was caught up in conflict. And so he was dealing on a regular basis with uh, women in particular uh, who were really struggling through persistent violence. Husbands may have been killed. uh, Children may have not been able to go to school as a result of that. Mm -hmm. So I I think it was an atmosphere that I grew up in that I tried to get away from but understand it, but seemed to be, when I got into it on an international level, uh, I began Mm -hmm. to realise that, okay, maybe this is actually something that I could uh, contribute to.
0: So your dad was really in the in one of the epicentres of the, the conflict in Northern Ireland. How did you feel at the time when you were growing up around it, as a, as a child, as a teenager, as a young uh, young man, how did it make you feel? Did you feel angry? Did you feel disappointed to see all the conflict going on around you?
1: You know, I, I think, obviously I owe a huge amount to my parents because my parents were always very understanding of um, different faiths, different religions... Uh, non-judgmental brought up their eight kids with a view to become international thinkers and not to align themselves to a particular side or a particular political agenda but I think as young growing up it's the frustrations of a bit like COVID limited social life um, uh, life being interrupted areas where you know may not be safe to go to uh, and those kind of things. So it 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 growing up in that, it you didn't really notice it. Life went on, but it was only when you're out of it and you look back that you realise it was kind of uh, a challenging upbringing. But I, I I kind of think in many respects, you know, people will say whether it's Kosovo or Rwanda or Cambodia or, or working through a major crisis. It's as long as you are focused on what you're doing within those. And you have a purpose, you have access, and you have an ability to work through those. You put into perspective kind of the challenging context that you're in. Mm. It's often you only reflect back uh, on places like Rwanda when you were there post genocide of how challenging it was. How
0: was that in Rwanda? Because it was one of the worst genocides. Before. I
1: found Rwanda tough. Uh, I found it very tough because I had come in from, uh, it was. It was probably the toughest assignment I've ever had in concern. And so I came in to lead a team in the post-genocide situation. So I think what you have to imagine is that, um, effectively, the bodies were still there, um, houses had been abandoned. Even practical things, we were trying to rent houses in Kigali, and um, we weren't sure uh, how many people had been killed within those houses i remember looking at this and there was tripwires because people were trying to protect their property but there was bloodstains in those and so it was very alive and very fresh the biggest challenge i think in many respects is if this had been an attacking force somehow it would have been different but this was communities turning on communities and there was no level of trust none whatsoever and you're as an international organization doing Trying to think about community development, about getting communities to work together. That was the concept of that in Rwanda was really, really tough.
0: How did you do it or were you able to do it ultimately?
1: I think the thing is you have to break things down into stages. Massive displacement internally, externally within Rwanda. Huge needs in relation to the basics, food, shelter, water and protection. And so that was what the focus was. It was it was tough, um, and concerned staff. the were staff that we hired; they themselves had gone through brutal experiences, and we had to be conscious of that all the time. The only other time I saw that, to the same extent, or to 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 an extent, was Haiti after the earthquake. When you fly in and you get concerned staff who are professional humanitarian responders Haitian staff Rwandan staff whatever and you're saying I know you've lost your home and I know you may have lost relatives but I need to pull you together to mount a response so dealing with the staff themselves that, that they themselves have been deeply disadvantaged and trying to trying to mobilize and motivate them was a challenge but I have to say if you look at Rwanda today you know 25 years on At the time, I said, there is no way in my lifetime that this country will ever be able to heal or overcome. Mm. So I think it's really important when you're looking at places like Syria or Yemen to remember that other countries have come out of that, not in two generations, but in a matter of decades.
0: How did Rwanda do that to you? Was there any particular thing that was able to bring the country together to actually become the country it is today? Because you said when you were there, you couldn't have seen it being what it is like today? Was there some particular leader, some particular quality in the country? that? that
1: I think there was a huge amount of uh, international funding and attention that went into Rwanda. Some of it was driven by guilt, by uh, it could, should have been prevented. I think the fact that they set up the uh, community trials that went on to deal with uh, the genocide, uh, that was a long, painful process. But ultimately, that started to heal. And it was a country that had nowhere else to go but to try and recover. And I think Ireland, you know, it's really interesting you can compare the comparisons. How long did it take Ireland to accept the consequences of famine and for famine to become part of something, the narrative of Ireland, that we were comfortable and okay with talking about? It took a long time. So Rwanda in many respects is somewhat of a model um, that can be taken forward uh, for other situations of conflict.
0: Those people that you met when you were when you were first on the ground in Rwanda then um, have they sort of maintained a link with concern at all? Have you been out to Rwanda and met people let's say you would have met decades ago or is that yeah. connection lost completely?
1: No, I mean I've been back to Rwanda a number of times and I went back for the 20th anniversary and um, but I saw a country that was, had been transformed, that still had uh, very significant uh, issues that it had to deal with, but it was dealing with them. Um, and it was a country that it was at more peace with itself um, than, it, than certainly uh, I expected it to be. We're still working with communities uh, where people who were accused of uh, being part, part of the genocide may have been back trying to reintegrate them into communities, and that wasn't an easy process. And discrimination, impoverishment, uh, deep impoverishment in some parts of the country is, uh, continues to be the area that we've been working on, including education.
0: How was that done, integrating people who had who, been part of the genocide back into the communities? Because it, it, it's one of the most atrocious acts, I suppose. Mm. How did people sort of accept them back?
1: Conversations, accountability, keeping it on the agenda, not hiding it. There's a church just outside Rwanda uh, outside Kigali called Niamata and I went to visit there once and uh, it's a small church, it's not one of the biggest genocide sites um, but in there there was a preschool uh, where children and mothers and were slaughtered and, and I used to bring concerned staff there and say you're in here, you need to understand what's happened because within a year it was quite hard to understand the level of conflict that had happened Um, so you brought people in and say you need to understand that this is what people that you're going to be working with and for have gone through and you need to remember that Um, and I went back again in a couple of years ago to that church and it hasn't changed Um, but what was the Rwandan government would bring in busloads of uh, students and children uh, students and uh, school children to see this and understand what that history had been. And scrawled on the wall, uh, some students had written, um, we will stand in your place. And what that meant was students today saying that so many young people had lost their lives in there and education had, and a future had been robbed for them. And they are told that they are privileged to be in school to have a future and they say we're standing in the place of the, the children that were cut down uh, and we have a responsibility to contribute to a better society. Mm. And that was very moving. So keeping it alive and keeping it real and keeping uh, uh, the emphasis on never again is very much part of the fabric of Rwanda today.
0: And when you finished in Rwanda, then where did you um, go to with concern?
1: I mean, at the time I said that, uh, you know, I'm I very much somebody that went in and started large programs. It was one of the biggest, uh, I remember it wasn't just Rwanda, it was uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, yeah. Tanzania, Burundi. So this was a regional thing. And I remember saying <laughs> to my boss at the time, Jack Fanukan, maybe I should go into something a little bit less... Brought a little bit less challenging and I talked about going back to Cambodia which was on a more developmental path and he said well I'd like you to go into Burundi um, just for a couple of months to establish there and that turned into uh, a couple of years but after that uh, I then went to work with Concern in New York and uh, we have an office in there and part of the reason is we got quite a lot of US government funding we still do and we have representation at the UN. So that was a whole different side of the type of work that Concern does. Um, and I was based there, although doing emergency response, but my main job in there was really trying to represent the interests of the organisation to the donors in the UN. And
0: how do you find that, going from the really <clears throat> emotionally difficult circumstances in countries like Burundi, Rwanda, seeing um, such poverty and pain um, and all that and then going to New York this this metropolis um very developed, very wealthy uh, working in an office. How did you find that that change?
1: Um, I, the thing is I, I I had my agenda I think if I'd never worked overseas, I would have not been sure um, what my focus would have been going to the US but to me it was very clear. The thing is, I think in many respects, people always talk about working in these challenging contexts, you know, and are you consumed by problems? And the truth is, you go in to help resolve problems, but all you see is potential. All you see is the potential and possibility of the human spirit. And it is humbling and uh, powerful. I got a huge respect for the people who support Concern and the people who work for Concern on fundraising. Uh, communications who are dedicated and committed even though they don't actually work on the front lines Mm -hmm. and to me that was extraordinary I mean you will have people even who support concern across Ireland across anywhere who are taking a leap of faith in reaching out to support an organisation and people who are working in countries that they will never visit Mm -hmm. and people they will never meet and I think that's extraordinary.
0: Then coming to the work itself then, how many um, volunteers and workers are there in, w- w- within concern throughout the world?
1: We have about 4,000 staff. And then we have the the uh, home support offices. And our most recent office that was opened a number of years ago um, was in South Korea. Okay. And hmm. actually, just importantly, one of the reasons I think in South Korea it's a very young population. It's uh, very digitally savvy. It's a relatively wealthy uh, population, but importantly, it had a shared history with Ireland in terms of overcoming conflict, overcoming famine. And what they've come out with is, at the government and the institutional level, is they want to contribute back to countries that are going through the same. If you go into their government funding thing, they have this list of every country that contributed to Korea after the war, and what they gave. And they feel an obligation to take that generosity and to share it with others. And that was what was really inspiring about us going in.
0: Wow. Okay. And you mentioned there um, has a very young population, uh, South Korea. Do you find that the younger generation, my generation, uh, have engaged with concern or even uh, NGOs generally?
1: Yeah, I mean, so, you know, we talk a lot about the work we're doing overseas, but I mean, here in Ireland, you know, we've been running the school debates for 30, 40 years. It's phenomenally successful. It engages all of the schools across Ireland around debating around the issues. And I think what's great is that the winning teams then get to travel uh, and experience and see uh, for themselves. So there's that level of engagement. I think certainly any of the work that we're doing around the Sustainable Development Goals, around climate action. These are areas that young people recognise now that this is our world, we're not happy with the way it's going, we need change. We saw that in COP26, that as much of the media attention was outside uh, in the protesting and the climate activists as it was inside. And that is really encouraging to see that there's a next generation that is agitated, that is activated, that wants change for a better world. I think within concern what we would want to say is we also want to ensure that it's not just a single focus. Climate uh, crisis is hugely uh, uh, important, but also we're also driving out now a campaign, what we call Nothing Kills Like Hunger. Mm -hmm. And you can click into that on concern because that really is trying to say the biggest driver of hunger globally at the minute is conflict. And it is absolutely unacceptable on every level that any child should be suffering from malnutrition or starving. Our mothers, who we have discovered in a big survey that we did, eat least and last to try and ensure that their children should survive. Mm -hmm. And so this is within conflict situations that are on the increase. This is now where we're, we're approaching more famine than we have in the last 10 or 15 years. And the three drivers, climate, conflict, COVID. So any of the progress that we're seeing towards the Sustainable Development Goals is being radically reversed by those three elements. So Nothing Kills Like Hunger is really trying to get young people to go in and sign and lobby around the ending of conflict and thereby uh, reducing the levels of hunger. The reality is there is trillions spent on waging war and by comparison, there is a pittance spent Mm. on providing humanitarian assistance to those as a result of a conflict or even trying to stop and prevent. Let me just give you one statistic, right? The global humanitarian appeal for this year is 36 billion and that is to provide 156 million people with enough to survive we're not talking about anything fancy here we're talking about food shelter protection that is funded currently at 13 billion
0: so not so, even half
1: yeah and and here's the net result of that you go into central africa republic and you say to the head of the un where we're working you've got 34 percent of the budget that you asked for how do you manage that what do you do and he said you cut everything He said, so forget about gender-based violence, protection, education in camps, IDP camps and internally displaced camps. He said, you don't do those. You look also at the big costs and you reduce food rations from twice daily to once daily in the clear knowledge that you are pushing women and young girls into negative coping mechanisms. Child labour, early marriage. So, you know, what we've seen with COVID is governments will move trillions to protect domestic economies, and that's a good thing. But persistently, every year, global humanitarian appeals are probably less than 50% funded.
0: And why is that? I mean, governments commit to helping other countries, or certainly on the the out, on the exterior, it seems that governments want to help with this. Why is there not that funding then? Why aren't they f- funding it 100% or even
1: 90%? Well, I mean, it's a key question. Um, I think in many respects, what you will find is there will be a tendency uh, for funding to be linked in to foreign policy, right? So you'll get a very significant funding, say, from the US government into places like Palestine or. Uh, areas where there is commercial and foreign policy interests. So the countries that are getting the least are the ones that have the least influence uh, from an economic or a foreign policy end. Haiti, Chad, Central Africa Republic, persistently underfunded. Irish government funding actually is much more focused on where the needs are greatest.
0: So that's the government side of things. There are businesses, particularly multinational companies, mm. throughout the world that have so much, so many resources, so much uh, money—probably uh, more money than some countries. Uh, what has been uh, have has the private sector
1: engaged enough with um, development? So our reputation with the private sector has been positive at a global level. It's not the private sector is not doing enough. And here's the thing, I mean a number of years ago I was at the UN and they had all these CEOs from the private sector and 71% of them said we absolutely believe that the private sector has a key role to play in the achievement of the sustainable development goals. But only 21% accepted that they were really doing anything about it. And the key areas that they were interested in uh, was predominantly around employment, you know, that side of the whole house, Less was going into environment, and less was going into hunger.
0: So governments really have a tendency to support countries that, let's say, like Palestine, uh, in the US context, where where they have a diplomatic interest. Companies want to support initiatives that uh, sort of uh, around work. How can companies and countries depart from those kind of those interests and just support people on a whole? Is a, yeah, and do I you think, need a But I bad think the story? way you
1: characterize that is is too simplistic. Mm. Um, I think certain.
0: Certain, yeah. Certain yeah. countries and certain and com- companies. I
1: think that we are seeing a big sea change. Corporations and governments are now recognizing that consumers and uh, the public is demanding a much more inclusive approach. The reality is we are in a smaller, more interconnected, much more vulnerable world than we were 20 years ago. When Ebola struck West Africa, and it was one flight away, we recognized that actually, this is not a problem over there. This is our problem. The knock-on effect of an interconnected world means we need to think globally for all these solutions.
0: Do you ever get angry at the lack of lack of change? I mean, you've been here, you've been working for Concern for decades. Uh,
1: The one thing I've never forgotten is once you see a child dying of hunger it changes you forever and it makes you angry and then it makes you compelled not to see ever that happening again and so you drive towards ensuring because the worst thing is it's preventable the thing is I think what we're not talking enough about is the solutions that need to be scaled up and resourced. Concern is not an organisation that just keeps talking to the problem. We have to keep talking about, well, what needs to happen. So if you're looking at our climate smart agriculture, conservation agriculture, that's now reached 730,000 farmers, predominantly female. And what is that doing? It's tripling their yield and uh, it's more sustainable and it's reducing labour. In Malawi, Trinity College went in and did a study of the impact of this labour saving for women. It was giving women back 34 days a year that they didn't have to work.
0: Wow, 34 days.
1: Yeah. And 34 days a year is not a gift. It's their right. Mm. And I can tell you they, weren't, they would use those to find other ways probably uh, of generating income uh, uh, for their family. So these are the kind of initiatives that you go, this is incredible, this is transformative, this is putting people on a development path. That's one thing. When you see in Syria where we're putting kids through education, they've lost uh, three or four years of education because they've been displaced continuously. And you're starting to say, we've got to ensure that when Syria finally comes back together, as Rwanda did, that there is no lost generation. So this is the kind of investment, uh, I think, that really drives you. So does it make you angry? No, it just drives your determination to say, if you could see what can be done to transform the lives and how people themselves will take their own initiatives with very little outside support. Mm. um, That's what the motivation is.
0: You have this great picture um, in your office here in concern um, of a woman who's who's been empowered is that yeah
1: i'm actually i was going to mention that so she doris had already gone through so the picture is she is a farmer with a small field and after going through conservation agriculture climate smart program right two or three years she's a model farmer she's now teaching other women and she is standing there right saying i'm on my own i'm independent i'm empowered I'm on a path, and I'm on a path that I can give back to others. To me, she represents ultimately what our mission and vision is—to
0: make people independent, or to let people. Yeah, be
1: independent. yeah, yeah, yeah. To do, you know, that—that's—that's that's what we should be doing. Everything to me is around culture, values, approach, inclusion, effectiveness, impact.
0: And looking forward, then Dominic, um, do you have hope?
1: You know, we're at a stage, I think, in some ways that we are back to levels of hunger and poverty uh, that we thought that we had passed. And it can be uh, overwhelming. But what I do get a sense of is this seismic shift of change, uh, certainly among young people, around a level of activism. I think with the Sustainable Development Goals, we have 10 years, we're not going to make them. But we have an opportunity to make a very significant difference between now and then. And any advancement is positive and will have a positive impact on the lives of many people. I think if we're thinking about the new Sustainable Development Goals, the one thing I would say is these goals should be seen as rights. Mm -hmm. The right to food, the right to a job, the right to protection, the right to shelter. And if you move the goals and the language from objectives to rights you move from aspiration to obligation and accountability and that's what we need because we are lived through the last 50 years of decades of broken promises john f kennedy president john f kennedy more than 55 years ago at the first World Food Congress said we have the means we have the ability to end hunger in our lifetime what we need is the will that was 55 years ago we're still making promises and we're still breaking them and I think when it comes the resources are there the intelligence is there the solutions are there we're, we're we're, in, we're implementing them and communities are implementing them on a daily basis what's lacking actually is the global political will and that's what we saw coming out of COP26
0: a lack of global political will
1: to end uh, hunger, to end global poverty and to reduce conflict
0: we've mentioned a few times now, but after 50 years after decades, generations really of these atrocities hunger conflict where will that political will come from well
1: let me just tell you the one thing is we are fortunate to come from the country that we come in ireland is not the richest country in fact if anything ireland has had its own challenges and yet there is an extraordinary commitment to the values of international development and humanitarian assistance that is feeds a network and a global network of support and assistance throughout the world we must never underestimate that we should never be complacent about that empathy that compassion and that generosity if anything that is what gives us hope I mean I meet people that still come into the concern office because we still have a skeleton staff in here, and half the time I've been spending running up and down opening the door. <laughs> and this is people calling in to drop in a donation, And these are not people that are wealthy, but these are people that saying, I'm just making a country. And I make a point where I can to have a chat and talk to them and to learn about these people. And I can tell you something. The thousands of small donations amount to... A very large network that last year, you know concern across 24 countries uh, was reaching uh, and benefiting directly and indirectly 30 million people.
0: Small actions can have a great impact. Mm.
1: And that isn't just hope, that's reality in action.
0: Mm. On that note, uh, Dominic Storley uh, CEO of Concern Worldwide, thank you very much for joining me on Panoramica, uh, which is edited by Ryan Cole.